Well, Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, that in you, because of the reality of who you are, our hope is not in vain. I pray that uh, this morning, that from whatever our hope quotient was coming in, whether we felt really, really full or really, really empty, Lord, I pray that you would build up this people's hope in you. Because the reality, God, is that nothing and no one can stop you. You have won the victory for your people. And in you, Lord, we can trust that now and forever, we are safe in the power of who you are. Not because of us, Jesus, but because of you. And so today I ask that you would remind us of that truth in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, worship team. Well, I hope you guys are doing well. My name is Pastor Dave. Welcome to Hillside. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hey, thanks so much for being here. My name is Ryan Azaro. I am a pastor in San Marcos, Texas. Um, I pastor Landmark Church. And Hillside, since uh, almost a year ago, has been one of our most faithful, supporting, and sending churches. They have been such a blessing to us. You guys, your, your fellowship and your partnership in this fellowship has blessed our church richly. And so when I was asked to come and share the word today, I was super excited. I just love being with all of you. I love the church. That's why I do what I do. And I love church planning. But if you've ever been in a church plant, you know it is significantly different than a mature or established church. Um, I mean, just on a sheer like age level, the average age of my church is like 23. Um, and so when I get to come to a place like this and I'm surrounded not just by people who are my age, but people who have been down the road from me, when I'm surrounded by elders, it's such a blessing to me. Uh, that's one of the things I miss the most about being in a generational church. And that's one of my prayers for our church is that as the years go on, we would be a church that represents um, from the earliest stage of life to the latest stage of life. And so thank you so much um, for what Hillside has been to our church. Yeah, because I, I, I love the work that we're doing. I see God moving. Um, I love being a pastor, but one of the things that I found in this season, because I was uh, for about seven years a worship pastor at my home church before we moved to San Marcos, and one of the things that I found is being a lead pastor, the person who is, as much as anyone, responsible to help shepherd God's people in a local context, one of the things I found that happens when you accept that level of responsibility is inadequacies are revealed that previously had not been obvious. Um, insecurities pop up, fears, sin struggles. And, and in this, I don't feel like it's just being, becoming a senior pastor. I think for a lot of us, we experience this in, in many different places in our life. I remember before I gave my heart to the Lord, um, I, I really walked away. But when I was 19, um, I gave my heart to Jesus and, and, and I came to know him and I met uh, an amazing gal and we started dating. And right before we got married, I was um, 20, 21, and I really felt like I'm growing in the Lord. 
And it was beautiful. And I felt like maturity was happening and wisdom and all these things and self-control. And then I got married and realized that I wasn't nearly as mature as I thought I was. And then my wife told me that she was pregnant. And then we had this little beautiful creature that came into our lives. And the maturity that I thought I had gained in my early part of marriage was revealed to be insufficient once again. And it, it's like there's these seasons and these moments where, where I feel like I'm really doing well and then something happens and it reminds me like, oh man, I'm broken. That was the thing for me about, about marriage and, and parenting was nothing in my life had ever so painfully demonstrated how selfish I am. Because the thing about, it, especially like a little baby, is that they're really cute and that's about all that they offer. <laughs> all that they do other than that is take from you. And they don't ever say thank you. They just scream at you if you're not fast enough. And that for me was just such a, it made me realize like, wow, I really, I love living for me. And I've been walking with Jesus and I was seeing some fruit. But the more that I know the Lord and the more that he takes me on the journey of life, the more I really do, I see the depths of my sin. And it's this really interesting thing where the more I see the, the goodness and the glory of God and the more I walk down this road of righteousness with him, the more when I really look honestly inside, I see my sin. I was thinking about it the other day. Uh, Jesus is to our revelation of sin what sunlight is to my clean house. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever cleaned your house with maybe not all the lights on, not really thinking about it, and you feel like it's starting to get really clean, the floors look great, the counters look great, and then you open the blinds, and you realize, like, this place is filthy. That's what following Jesus has been like to me. Like, if you would have asked me to write out, like, Ryan's big sins when I was 19, coming to know the Lord, there would have been a very specific list. If you asked me now, there would be a very different list. And the first list I wrote, what's interesting about that, the list I wrote before I came to know the Lord or as I was coming to know him, it was so much like the symptoms of what was really going on. Now that I've been walking with Jesus for like 10 years, I'm seeing more and more the heart of my sin and the root of it. And what's crazy about that is that that for me is actually much harder to deal with. And I think as Christians, when we, when we have this understanding, because if it's true that, that knowing Jesus, if I know him rightly, is going to reveal more of my sin, not less, I think when we encounter this, there, there's a bunch of different roads that we can travel. Some are roads of the world and then some are the roads of, of, of religion. One of those roads is just to, to deny the reality of God, right? Because if, if God doesn't exist, and that means that there's no universal lawmaker, and that means that sin doesn't exist. And so when I'm, when I'm really feeling the weight of my sin, sometimes it's easier to just go, there is no such thing as sin, because there's no such thing as God. And I would call this like a, a universal delusion, because many of you here, you, you believe what I believe, which is that the most fundamental truth of reality is that there is a God, he is mighty, and he's good. So this denying of the reality of God to cover up our sin is a universal delusion. The second 
thing than I think we do. And this is much more, I, I would say, culturally prevalent, especially in, in religious circles, is that we may acknowledge the reality of God and we may acknowledge the reality of our, our falling short of God, but, but we deny the fact that God cares about sin. So we say, yeah, 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 like, uh, we, we all fall short, don't we? And, and God is real and he's good, but he doesn't care about all that sin stuff. He just wants to be friends with us. And if you read the gospel at all, you know that's not true because God cares so much about sin that he sent his son to die on a cross because of sin. So that road leads us astray. The third road we can take is we can downplay our brokenness or we can spend a life really looking at everybody else and saying, man, I am so thankful that I'm not sinful like those people. I have the mind and heart of God. So like for me, I, I don't really struggle with these things anymore. I may have some little things, but these ones are really, really messed up. And we can downplay our own brokenness, acknowledging that God is real, acknowledging that God cares about sin, but really just not acknowledging that, that in our hearts, we still have got a lot of it. And then the fourth road, and I think this one may be, if there's a road that one of us is traveling apart from the gospel road here this morning, I think the one many of us might really be wrestling with is when we acknowledge the goodness of God and, and how much he loves us and how good he is. And when we see rightly the reality of our sin, I think so many of us, if we're not vigilant to the gospel message, if we're not careful, we can travel a road to despair that just goes, I, I don't know what to do at this point. Like I'm not winning in insert your sin struggle here. I'm not winning it doesn't feel like it's happening fast enough. And I don't know what to do. Maybe it's not our sin. Maybe it's just the sins of this world. Maybe it's something like Uvalde. And just looking at the reality and going, God, I know that you're good. And Jesus, I know that you came to, to remove the wages of sin, but like, I just see so much and I don't know what to do with this. And those are the roads that I think so often, if we miss the gospel road, we travel in the context of our sin. But, but I do believe the Bible offers us a different road. Interestingly enough, I, I think the book of Genesis offers us a different road, specifically Genesis chapter 20. I was really excited when I was asked to preach Genesis 20 is a part of y'all's series through Genesis because I think so often when we're talking about gospel solutions to sin, we don't really look at Genesis. But I think that Genesis, specifically Genesis 20, in this discussion of how do Christians interact with the lingering sin of our hearts, I think we're offered a different road, one whereby we encounter the supreme goodness of God in the midst of profound imperfection. And that's what I hope we discover together this morning. So can we pray? Lord, I ask that you would teach us. God, I pray that this morning as we, as we come before your word, you would do a work of humility in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that if there's any of us who have traveled any of those roads in here this morning, denying you, denying your heart towards sin, denying our brokenness, despairing, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your gospel, that you would teach us. 
In your name, Jesus, amen. So if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, I'm gonna read this passage for you, starting at verse one. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God called me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is God's word, amen. amen. So Genesis 20 is all about the sin of God's chosen people and the result of that and the workings of God in that. And I, and I see in this passage a, a, a fascinating contrast between human brokenness and God's glory. I see two primary things, and, and there's a lot that comes in each one. The first thing that I think that we see is we see the lingering sin of the father of our faith. Abraham, okay, that, that idea that Abraham is the father, not just of the people of Israel, he's the father of every person who, who believes in the promise of God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ. That comes from Galatians 3. 
This passage is about the man who, who more than anybody else, and when we read the Bible, right, the whole thing of Israel, of, of Jesus coming, all of it, it began with Abraham. And if there's anyone in the universe, other than Jesus, right, if there's any human being that, that I feel like should get it right, it should be the father of the faith, right? And what's so interesting about this passage is we see this not new follower of God, a mature, had walked with God for 30 years follower who is devastatingly sinful. And this is really, really interesting to me. I mean, think about what Abraham has done here. He has given his wife to another man and all that implies simply to save his own skin. So he is a liar. He's a coward. I would say he's an abuser. That, that constitutes as like an abusive husband. This is the father of our faith. That's what the Bible says. And I think that's really interesting because when we gather in this table, we have to understand when we come together as the people of God, our legacy is not a legacy of perfect people. It's a legacy of a perfect God. And Abraham is a sinful man. And when I think about this sin, I think in it we see so much of what the heart of all sin really is. Abraham traded the promise of God for the infinitely lesser temporary security of man. I think of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 uses Esau, who we'll learn about later, as the example of, of so much of human sin. And it says Esau, and there's this story in Genesis where Esau is really hungry and he comes back from a long trip and his brothers made a pot of stew. And it says that Esau, despising his birthright, traded it away for a single meal. And I see what Abraham does here. And you think about what God had promised Abraham God said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bring this nation. You're going to have more descendants than, than the sand of the seashore, right? Than the stars in the sky. Through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. Not specifically through like the offspring that I'm going to bring. And God didn't say I'm going to bring it from somebody generally. He said, I'm going to bring it through your wife, Sarah, right? Like Abraham tried it another way. It didn't work. I'm going to bring it through Sarah. That's the one I'm going to bring the promise through. And here in Genesis 20, we see Abraham not just giving away his wife, because that's horrible enough, literally giving away the very means by which God said, I'm going to do all these incredible things, giving away the promise of God for the idea of security of the flesh. And what we see is like his fear wasn't even well-placed. He seriously misjudged Abimelech, but he was afraid. And so he traded glory for gruel. And I think this is really important for us to see because what I hope this message is, is a message of hope for those who are wrestling with lingering sin. But what we have to understand and what we have to, to consider for a moment is the pain that Abraham's sin caused. Like, have you ever thought about, if you've read this passage before, what must have been like Abraham's ride back to his tent that night? What, what, what must that have been like? Like, think about 
his thought process, like she's, she's, she's with Abimelech right now. I, I gave my wife away to, an, to another man. Do you, know, do you know the kind of shame he felt? Do you know how despicable he felt? And rightly so, right? Do you know what Sarah must have felt? Do you know how afraid she must have been? How betrayed she must have felt? Do you know how poor Abimelech felt when God shows up in this dream? Like, I had no idea. Do you know how the, the women who, whose wombs had been closed up must have felt? It's like everybody in this situation is losing because of God's promised man's sin. And that should teach us to take our sins seriously. Active sins, even for the saints, maybe especially for the saints, maybe especially for us, it steals our peace. It steals our ability to enjoy the promise, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And it damages our witness. But this is why I think it's so interesting to see that this is the father of our faith. Because when we consider, right, this is the guy that God said through you, all the earth's gonna be blessed. This is the guy that, that God says, my, my, my very son is gonna come, descended from your line, and he's gonna purchase the redemption of all humanity. This is the guy, why? It wasn't because apparently Abraham was super righteous. This isn't the first time Abraham does this. He did it in Genesis 12. He literally did the same thing 30 years before, and he's doing it now again. So why did God choose him? Why did God choose David? Why did God choose Peter? Why did God choose me? It's not because these are all really righteous people in and of themselves. It's because God is good. And he has ordained to choose and love and care for and redeem a people by whom all the world will be blessed. And he will receive glory. That's the reason why. That's why Abraham... And this leads me to understand in Genesis 20, what I see, I do see the lingering sin of our father of faith. And I see the damage it caused. But more than that, I see the indestructible promise of God. Literally indestructible. I mean, if Abraham wanted to come up with a way he could mess up God's plans, he couldn't have picked a much better situation. And yet, God works. The promise is protected. Look at verses two through six. So Abraham says of his wife, she's my sister. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took her. So everything's going wrong. The whole thing's falling apart. The promised one is now in the hands of a pagan king. I love this. But God, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is, my, she is a man's wife. I think this is amazing because if anyone should be told, behold, you're a dead man, it should be Abraham. Really honestly, it should absolutely be Abraham. But Abraham saved by grace through faith. And the promise can't be undone. The promises, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. And so God's going to Abimelech. And Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say 
to me, she is my sister. And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Listen to this part in verse six right here. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. So God says, I, I know you didn't know. And it was I who kept you from sinning. Let me say that again. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This is amazing. And it totally violates our concept of, of total autonomous human free will because God literally says, no, no, no. The reason that nothing worse happened is because I literally told you you couldn't. You didn't even know I told you that, but I did. I wouldn't allow it because I have a plan. I'm working for my people and my glory, and I'm not going to let anyone or anything get in the way of that. That's what's happening here. The promise is protected. Abraham is restored and blessed. I think this is really interesting. Look at verse seven. So God says, therefore, I did not let you touch her. And then he says this, now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. So God is saying, this one that you took the wife from, he's one of mine, give her back, and he's gonna pray for you so that you'll live. Here's a really interesting question. Why didn't God just say, give her back and I'll heal you and you'll live? He's re-including Abraham in the whole thing. The guy who's the whole reason we're in this mess, he's inviting Abraham back in. Yeah, he's still my prophet. He's gonna pray for you, Abimelech, and you'll be healed when he prays for you because I work through him, even though he's a goof, even though he did all this stuff. Abraham is restored instantly. We don't even see, and, and this is not to say that what Abraham did wasn't devastating, but we don't even see God rebuke Abraham in this passage. God's just bringing glory from gruel, even though Abraham traded glory for gruel. Abraham's restored, and he's not just restored, he's blessed. This is ridiculous. Look at <laughs> verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. Abraham walks away with more than he walked in with. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And then look at verse 16. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. So Abraham does this thing. It's horrible. Sarah is kind of complicit, but really she's in many ways a victim. And they walk away, not just by the skin of their teeth, not, man, we missed out on the promise, but at least we're still alive. The promise is protected. They are restored to their stat status as God's chosen people, Abraham is prophet. And they walk away with more resources, more money than they did before. My sin is not always correlated in my life this way. But, but really, there's a lesson here for God's people. And it's not whenever you sin, you get more money. Please don't hear that. God's promise is indestructible. And his people are blessed not because they are perfect in righteousness, but because he 
is perfect in love. And the last thing I, I, I see in this passage is that through all of this mess and all of this nastiness, God is glorified. Look at verse eight for just a small example. This is after God comes to Abimelech. And he said, the, the scripture says, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. So Abimelech's walking in obedience. Throughout this whole thing, Abimelech comes across as a God-fearing, honorable person. So he tells them these things and listen to what happens. And the men, Abimelech's men, were very much afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of this God that they're encountering. Why are they afraid? Because God's exercising his power. Why is he exercising his power? Because Abraham made a huge mistake and God's bringing glory from it. So through this horrible, horrible sin, which it is, God not only is protecting his promise, he's not only restoring his people and actually bringing them into more blessing, he is teaching the world, the nations, about who he is. And he's bringing them into a fear of him. And I think of the scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God is doing good things all over this situation and it's overwhelming the first two verses which are about Abraham's sin. And so when I think about that, I see that for me, as I'm studying this passage, that, that what I see in, in the heart, the very foundation of Genesis 20, as I see the sins of a saint being swallowed up by the grace of God. And the question for us, the, the, the massively important question for all of us this morning is that is this something God always does? Throughout, do we see this throughout the history of redemption or is this a one-time thing? And for those of us who aren't really feeling the weight of our sin right now, this may not seem that important, but for those of us who have made a huge mistake recently, for those of us who have something in our past that we don't know if we'll ever be able to, to find forgiveness and healing from, for those of us who are experiencing the weight and the wages of someone else's sin, this becomes a really important question. Did God in Genesis 20 swallow up the sins of a saint by his grace? One time, or does he always do this? And I think the testimony of scripture says, this is just who God is, always, throughout the history of redemption. Later in Genesis, we'll, we'll read about a guy named Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers. Like one of the worst things you can imagine, selling your brother into slavery, just despicable. And through that, Joseph becomes like the second most powerful person in the known world and saves the entire people of Israel, maybe the whole world, ancient world at least, through him being sold into slavery. Uh, Solomon was born from a gal named Bathsheba who was stolen by David from another man and David killed that man. And yet Solomon, who is the greatest of kings before Jesus himself, Solomon, who Jesus descended from, Solomon, the man of wisdom, he came from that. This is what God has done all throughout history. He has swallowed up the sins of his people, bringing glory and blessing. And the question for us is like, how? 
How does he do this and remain just? How, how does God do this and hate sin? And the answer, as many of you know, is in his son. It's Jesus. When you think about the situation that led to Jesus' death, even, everybody in this narrative, or almost everybody in this narrative, when you're reading through the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, everybody is sinning but Jesus. Judas betrays him. The Pharisees conspired. The disciples deny him. Pilate knows what he should do, knows what's right. He still hands Jesus over. Everybody is doing things that offend God and go against his will. And yet in that, God's perfect plan is perfectly executed. And that plan, what is that plan? Flip your Bibles to to Romans chapter three. This plan that God through Jesus carried out is the reason we can with confidence believe that not just in Genesis 20, but in our lives, in the history of redemption, God has swallowed up the sins of his saints by the power of his grace. In Romans chapter three, starting at verse 19, we read this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So there is a wage to sin. And the law was given so that we would be accountable to that price. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's impossible since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So where does that leave us? Hopeless, condemned. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show not our righteousness. Listen, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God do this? How can God be a just God who hates sin, who is good in everything, but also how can he so freely, abundantly, incomprehensibly bless and redeem sinful people like us? Jesus. And it's so interesting in Romans 4, the connection we see to the story of Abraham. Romans four, if you continue on, it it starts immediately talking about how Abraham was justified by faith. And then it begins to talk about the foundation and how how Abraham was justified long before the law came because he was justified through the promise. And, And listen to what we read in Romans 4, 16. This is why it depends on faith, our justification, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Abraham, the sinful man. And this is why it's so amazing, because when I think about the story of God, why was man created? 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, okay? We are here that God might be glorified. And what brings God the most glory? A people who secured righteousness in and of their own strength or a people who have been graciously, perfectly, beautifully redeemed because of no work of their own, but because of Jesus. God himself made flesh. This is the gospel. The sins of the saints are swallowed up by the grace of God. And when we look and we see this in Genesis 20, and when we acknowledge that this is not just the reality for Abraham, it's the reality for you and me, I think there's four applications or four responses. And I think this is really important because I I think so many of us, man, if you grew up in church and if you've read the Bible, at least the one that I'm reading, I think maybe in your head, you know this, like we would say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously like we're justified by grace through faith. Like it's not our works, but we got to do it, right? We got to get it right. That's, that's how my heart posture conflicts with what I say I believe. I think so often when I look at my life, it's like, I believe you, Jesus, that you forgave the sins I committed before I knew you, but then I came to know you and I should know better now. And I got to take it from here and I got to walk right. And the state of my heart, whenever I don't, reflects that I'm not sure if I fully believe that I am saved not by what I do. I am saved because of the grace of him who calls. And so I think the responses we, we ought to have to Genesis chapter 20 are, are really important. The first one is beware. When we read Genesis 20, we should beware because even as saints, we are sinners. And we need to understand this and not try to hide from this. Because sin would, in our lives, it would make liars out of those of us who deny its existence, right? First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we lie. The truth is not in us. So sin would make liars out of those of us who deny that it's not in us or in us. Sin would defeat those of us who choose to rely on self to combat it. Any of us, it doesn't matter how long I've been walking with Jesus. The moment I go from Jesus, you're the only way, you're the only truth, you're the only life, and I move to Jesus, I thank you for the kind of person you've made me to be, I'll take it from here. The moment I do that, sin will destroy me. Abraham had known Jesus for 30 years when he gave his wife to another man. Sin is always crouching at my door. And the only way I am going to continue to walk in righteousness is when I rely on Jesus and walk by faith. It defeats those who rely on self to combat it. Sin destroys those who resign themselves to it. And this is one of those great gospel tensions. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are saved that we might become righteous. And when we think sin's not a big deal, And when we think that Jesus came so I could just let sin reign in me, we are so fundamentally rejecting the truth of the gospel, we no longer even really believe in the gospel. So Genesis 20 gives warning. But then Genesis 20 also teaches us, take heart, 
And I think for many of this, this is the message that we need. God is at the work. He is securing the promise for his people even in our darkest hours. Do you believe that? The darkest moments of your life, the worst things that you've done. When I think about my life before Jesus, like I said, I started following him when I was 19, but I've always done everything like 100%, whichever direction I'm going. So when I ran from Jesus, I ran really hard and I sowed seeds of death and I tasted the fruit of it. And when I even now think back to my life then and the things I did, if I'm not careful, I can get so worked up and ashamed, my hands will start to shake when I think about who I was. And some of you may, may not be just looking at the past, you may be looking at right now and going, there's, there's no way I could ever really take this to the Lord. I, there's no way I could ever take it to another person. Some of you are experiencing the sins of a, of a spouse or, or, or a parent or a friend. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, there is no way that this could ever be made right. Not just made right, there's no way that God could even be in this. And I want you to know that Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That does not say all things that are good work together for good. It says all things, every single thing in your life works together for good. Not because of you, because of God. And I can take heart in that even when I'm overwhelmed. And then we can draw near. This is the third thing I think that we see from this passage. Um, friends, we do not have to hide away anymore. Jesus came to break down the dividing wall of hostility. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You will be healed. The prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. We don't have to run away when we sin anymore. Running away is the oldest response in the book. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was run away from God. We don't have to do that anymore. That's why Jesus came. When we sin, we can actually run to him. And I don't know about you, but so often in my life when I sin, I feel this need to go and hide away and clean myself up and get right before I come back to God. And that is not the gospel. We can run to Jesus when we sin, be it for the first time or the thousandth. Christians, we don't stop repenting when we become Christians. We live in this constant state of like, Lord, I know I missed it yesterday, but I'm really, I want to walk with you. And so I'm going to run to you no matter what's going on. I'm going to run to you no matter how I failed. And if you've never run to Jesus, you can do that right now. His grace is extended to all who would receive it. So we draw near. And the last thing is we have got to be, when we receive the truth of Genesis 20, we've got to be a people who give grace because we have received much grace. Our world is really short on grace. Our world's really good at keeping score. And there's so much in me that somehow, and I don't even know how I do this, though I've been forgiven so much, 
my default when someone offends me or sins against me is to start seeking justice. And we have just got to understand we have been given so much grace, people of God, and we have got to be a culture of grace, radical grace, grace that doesn't make sense outside of this place. The kind of grace that says, oh, oh, you wanna steal my jacket? You can have my shirt too. We've gotta be a people of grace. That's what Genesis 20 was doing in me as I was studying it this past week. And, and you know, as we close, I, I just imagine communities that, that really embrace this. Like, man, I, I wanna see Hillside. I wanna see my church, Landmark, to, to really live this. People who are completely uncontrolled by their sin. Their sin doesn't have authority to separate them from God. Their sin doesn't have the authority to keep them far off. People who are, are convinced enough of the reality of the gospel that we are, are hungry to confess our sin and to bring it into the light. People who are so fueled by the grace of God that giving unmerited grace to other people is, is the only reasonable thing. Imagine communities where we just did this all over our world. It would change things. Imagine communities where, where the corporate grace that we experience has the power to undo individual sins. That's my prayer for, for this church. So, so as we close, I, I just wanna, I wanna ask God for that. And, and I encourage you, if you are in the midst of a deep and feeling like a losing struggle against sin, don't do it alone. Jesus came so that you wouldn't have to. He gave you his church and his word and his Holy Spirit so that you wouldn't have to. So Jesus, I just ask that you would um, teach us, Lord. Teach us. I pray that you would um, convict us of sin, God. I pray that you would show us the areas where we are falling short. I pray that you would give us hope in your grace, in the reality of the fact that, that we're not here because of our righteousness, we're here because of yours. I pray that you would give us joy to continue on in the pursuit of righteousness by faith. And Lord, I pray that, that that this church would be a place where, where people so fundamentally and radically experience your changing grace that we would see victory in our lives over sin. And that when people come into this place, Lord, they would feel the invitation of grace, not to pretend perfection, but to become holy by your power and in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.